Welcome to Appearance Matters, the podcast, the appearance psychology podcast brought to you by the Centre for Appearance Research, a world-leading research centre based at the University of the West of England in Bristol, investigating everything related to the psychology of how we look. I'm Nadia. And I'm Jade. And following last month's episode with Dr. Gerald Carlzell on sexual orientation and body image and disordered eating, this episode is on body image and disordered eating among people who identify as transgender. So to encompass people who are transgender women, transgender men, transgender non-binary, genderqueer or gender fluid. Right, so essentially we're using the term transgender to include anyone who's not cisgender. And cisgender is when a person's gender identity matches the sex that they were assigned at birth. And we are really lucky to be joined by expert Dr. Allegra Gordon for this episode to tell us more about, spoiler here, um, (laughs) why trans people are at higher risk of disordered eating compared to their cisgender peers and based on the current research and theory that we know. Right, and as Allegra points out, body image disordered eating and eating disorders are really under-researched in the trans community, so there's a lot that we're learning. But it does seem to be that there are more and more studies happening in this area, so it'll be good to come back to this topic in a year or two, see what else we know. Yeah, definitely. It would be great to find out the results from some of Allegra's work and what she mentions, actually, in the interview, just kind of as a starting point. Um, Anyway, shall we get straight into it and introduce Allegra? Good plan. So, Dr. Allegra Gordon is a social epidemiologist and research associate in the Division of Adolescent and Young Adult Medicine at Boston Children's Hospital and Harvard Medical School. A social epidemiologist, by the way, is a branch of epidemiology that focuses on the effects of social structural processes on health. Right, so one way of looking at it is looking at the social determinants of health, or the connection between social inequalities and health inequalities. So, for example, how socioeconomic status or racial inequality impacts health and health outcomes. Mm, And um, we should probably say, too, that epidemiology is the study of the patterns, causes and effects of health and disease conditions in different populations. So it is central to kind of public health research, really. Yeah, and while we're on demystifying weird academic terms, epidemiology... Epidemiology is often <laughs> abbreviated to epi because evidently, <laughs> evidently epidemiology is difficult to say. Also, I remember talking to someone and they kept saying that they did epi research and I had no idea what they're talking about. So I think... Good to clear it up. Yeah, yeah. It's, exactly. <laughs> so anyway, back to Allegra. She specialises in using quantitative and qualitative methods to understand the mental and physical health impacts of discrimination and the effects of gender socialisation and gender norms on the health of young people across sexual orientations and gender identities. She has a MPH, so a Master's in Public Health from Columbia University, which is in New York, and then a Doctorate in Social and Behavioural Sciences from the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. She's literally one of the cleverest people I know. (laughs) (laughs) She's also um, a faculty member of Harvard Striped, the Strategic Training Initiative for the Prevention of Eating Disorders, which is based at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health and led by Professor Bryn Austin. Right, and that's how I know Allegra. We actually did this interview a few months back when I was in Boston for a short study visit at Harvard Striped. We recorded in her office, which I probably should say is in the Longwood medical area, which is why you can hear so many sirens in the background. <laughs> I actually wondered why that was, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, that, that, that's why. And um, let's get to it. Let's hear from Allegra uh, talking with a very excited me. <laughs> <laughs> Great.
Hi Allegra, welcome to Appearance Matters, the podcast. I'm so excited to have you on. Hi Nadia, thank you so much. I'm really excited to talk with you. Awesome, and it's so good that we can do it in person. We're here in Boston. Yay. Yay. Um, right, we're going to go straight in because we're going to be talking about transgender people and body image and eating disorders and you're like the biggest expert I know in this area. Oh <laughs> yeah, well, I think so and I'm allowed to say whatever I think. So. <laughs> um, so I've read a study by Lizzie Deemer which suggests that transgender individuals are at higher risk of eating disorders than cisgender men or women regardless of their sexual orientation. Mm-hmm. So have I got that right and like, why is this? Mm-hmm. Yeah, great question, great set of big questions in it and that is still one of the sort of most important recent studies in this area because uh-huh. she and her team were able to uh, look at a national U.S. sample of uh, almost 290,000 college students. Wow. Yeah, and up until this, the last several years, we really haven't had a lot of population data where we've mm-hmm. been able to look at trends by gender identity, specifically, for example, comparing transgender populations to non-transgender, or as you said, cisgender uh-huh. men and women. Um, and that's been a real lack in the eating disorders field. Right. But in the last couple of years, um, we have seen some studies uh, that have that have been really concerning, I would say. Um, so in that study, uh, they did find that transgender college students had over two times greater likelihood of eating disorder symptoms and over four times greater likelihood of reporting a diagnosis of anorexia uh, mm-hmm. or bulimia in the past year compared to cisgender heterosexual women. And so, uh, and then there have been a few other epidemiologic studies um, in the U.S. and um, in a few other places that have been kind of reinforcing that concerning gap, that that health inequity that we're seeing. And in fact, it mirrors health inequities that we're seeing in public health and in epi research more broadly, where we're seeing that transgender men and women are are really experiencing some significant barriers to care and face some real health challenges um, for a variety of reasons that, that I think are, are important to tease out. So, right. um, so to your main question about sort of why this is mm-hmm. and why specifically yeah. when we're thinking about eating disorders, I'd say it's really likely that there's a whole constellation of forces at play. And in particular, what I've been thinking about and, and starting to talk about in my own work, and, and others have been starting to say this too, uh, and in fact, I just saw a new study recently that was just published by some uh, psychologists at Columbia, I think, uh-huh. that I'm really excited to read, so okay. flag that. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, we can link that in the show notes. We'll get it afterwards and Excellent. I'll put it in. Yeah. Excellent. Um, so, so the way I've been thinking about this mm-hmm. is that we have to consider both sociocultural forces mm-hmm. and minority stress processes, meaning right. kind of the role of stigma. So more specifically, that means it's not enough just to think about the negative impact of narrow masculinity ideals, narrow femininity ideals on body dissatisfaction and eating disorders uh-huh. risk, which um, has been a really important set of conversations in the eating disorders yeah. research for several decades. But we have to recognize that these ideals are entangled with the very pervasive stigma and discrimination that transgender communities still face in the U.S. and globally, I would say. But I, I also think at the same time that this not, might not be the full story story. Right, right. And you, we had, a, you gave a presentation earlier in the week and you uh, explained this so brilliantly and it really made, like, it was so clear for me to understand. You explained the social cultural theory and then the minority stress theory and that, that how those two kind of compound almost. 
but then you also said for the for the trans community there might be something else going on and you were talking about gender affirmation if I got that right and can you say more about what you mean by that yeah thank you Yeah, I think that there's a really um, valuable set of conversations to be had when we bring in uh, a gender affirmation framework, which um, one one paper people can go to if they're interested in reading Mm -hmm. more is by Jay Sebelius um, from 2013 that really lays Mm -hmm. this out um, in some detail. And Jay was focused on um, HIV risk, Mm -hmm. but there's a lot that we can learn in the body image and eating disorders field from this. Um, um, And bringing in a gender affirmation framework also kind of um, draws attention to the multiple different forms of social oppression that are integral to sort of the pathways to eating disorders risk Mm -hmm. for transgender populations. So I think it might be easiest if I gave a sort of example of what I mean from um, just from my own research. So a couple years ago, um, I did a, a small study here in the Boston area called Project Body Talk where uh, we interviewed 21 um, low-income transgender Mm -hmm. women, mostly transgender women of color, um, about their experiences with high-risk weight and shape control behaviors. Mm -hmm. I've read that study. I know it. So, yeah, great. Excellent. (laughs) So... In these conversations, many different important threads came out that were really kind of shedding light on this this conversation that we're uh-huh. having, um, the ways that women's experiences of navigating femininity ideals really couldn't be separated from the stressors they were exposed to as transgender women um, and as women of color. So participants talked about sexual objectification and mm-hmm. femininity pressures from family, friends, Mm -hmm. uh, media, very akin to the decades of research that we have on women's body image uh, more broadly and on Mm -hmm. embodiment. But these pressures were bound up with other forms um, of social oppression, bound up with racism, with weight Mm -hmm. stigma, with heterosexism. Um, I I could go on. And certainly with Mm -hmm. experiencing gender-related discrimination and violence, which came from many different corners, from families, from peers, from romantic partners, um, from strangers, from teachers, and from employers. So basically, and this is sort of what I mean about the constellation um, and um, that a gender affirmation framework really brings this kind of intersectional perspective to the to the core. So basically, if the degree to which someone's being perceived as quote unquote feminine enough or quote unquote not feminine mm-hmm. enough is linked not only to one's psychological well-being, but also to someone's very survival, Mm -hmm. that's going to put someone at very high risk of some potentially harmful weight and shape control behaviors or eating disorder behaviors. Right, and I think that makes so much sense. I think it's, from what it sounds like, from what you've described and with the work that I know that you do, that it's not just about kind of controlling your weight and shape to just look a certain way to feel pretty and nice in that way but it's also to like pass and feel accepted Mm -hmm. to not be exposed to some of the the violence that we see um against trans people that's kind of how I've how I really hear it and from the conversations that we've had so and I think that kind of brings it back because I think when we think about eating disorders like straight to mind you think of your heterosexual Mm -hmm. young Mm -hmm. cisgender woman right like Mm -hmm. it's like the first person you're like they're the high risk population Mm -hmm. but then from what we're saying with like two to four times risk Mm -hmm. with our trans population mm-hmm. it makes sense because they've got these added what's the word I'm looking for they've got all these like added kind of pressures and mm-hmm. and 
stresses and pushing them to want to look a certain way to feel accepted, which, again, I guess it makes sense. And I know we need more research in this area, but it kind of makes sense thinking about it like that, that they are at higher risk for uh, eating disorder um, behaviours at least. Yeah, it's a good point. Yeah, that is, it's very true. And then I guess to add another layer mm-hmm. to that, the, the other piece that the gender affirmation framework brings in, and, and it's often on people's minds, is this question of uh, gender affirming healthcare, accessing gender affirming healthcare, right. which itself, um, there can be many barriers people face to getting the healthcare that they need. And by gender affirming healthcare, I can mean uh, can mean a whole range of things, but a good example is um, hormone therapy or pubertal blockers, if uh, that's what's desired. And so, um, not being able to access necessary gender affirming care can be a huge barrier to health for transgender populations. Um, it can be an additional driver for some folks, sort of like you're saying. Um, of disordered eating behaviors that can be as a way to sort of potentially reduce gender dysphoria or to um, reduce feelings of distress um, and also to navigate the pressures of the world, um, what sort of the world expects um, Uh from from all of us as gendered people and the the kind of very real um, punishments essentially that can be enacted when people um, are not conforming or are not um, perceived to, to fit into those categories. And then I guess I'd just say then that on the flip side, that means that improving access to gender affirming care can be a really important sort of first intervention Mm -hmm. um, toward reducing eating disorders risk for some folks in the transgender population. Um, So there's at least one study um, by Ryland Testa um, and colleagues that's documented that actually accessing gender affirming medical interventions did improve body satisfaction, and it did reduce right. eating disorder symptoms um, in a sample of trans adults in the U.S. So that's that's a really powerful okay. um, piece of research. Yeah. But again, it I would suggest that that will only be one part of the solution right. um, for all the reasons that we're talking mm-hmm. about in terms of um, improving body, body satisfaction. Yeah, and just to recap, the gender-affirming healthcare is like um, hormonal treatment, potentially, that um, it's, yeah. it's that kind of thing, access to, to those kind of things, right? That's right, that's right. right. And the sort of degree of access varies widely around the globe. Yeah, um, sure, and, sure, I and can. In terms of what people are seeking and what they can get. Okay, my brain is going in so many different directions right now, but I have a number of questions that I wanted to ask, so I'm going to try and stick with those. <laughs> um, so do we know anything, because the... The term trans is kind of like an umbrella term from what mm-hmm. I understand to talk about trans men, trans women, but then also um, people who are like genderqueer or gender non-conforming. So do we know, I think first off, do we know if the risk for body image concerns and disordered eating are different from for trans men and trans women? And then after that, I'd like to ask about people who don't identify in either of those ways. Mm-hmm. But let's go between trans men and trans women first. Do we know any differences? That's a great question. Uh-huh. Um and this is another area where I think there's there's more that we don't know than right. that we know from a research perspective. Okay. But we do know, you know, we know that in the broader eating disorders literature, eating disorders risk does vary by gender mm-hmm. and, and, and by experience and symptoms and condition. We also know increasingly that eating disorders among cisgender men have been vastly underestimated. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a lot of 
reason to be attentive to those differences, but also maybe not to leap in with a particular assumption as we go right. forward in this yeah. research. Um, the study that I mentioned, um, or that you mentioned at the start, by Lizzie Deemer um, was not able to look at differences between trans men and trans women, mm-hmm. and that's that's been a general limitation that we found. We have small samples, and we're mm-hmm. not we sort of generalize to all trans sure. populations, and that's a very big generalization, as you're pointing out. Um, there have been a couple studies that have pointed out some differences, and and I've actually found different things depending okay. on how they're looking and right. who they're looking at. So, to the point about about differences by gender depending on how the study is conducted mm-hmm. and who's being asked. In the study with Massachusetts high school students, they found that um, transgender students had higher uh, risk of disordered eating behaviors, disordered weight control behaviors than the cisgender male students, mm-hmm. but the same risk as the cisgender female students right. who also had very elevated risk. Right. So there, there we saw sort of um, important differences by gender between cisgender and transgender communities. Um, But more specifically to your question, there was an interesting study in the UK um, by Gemma Whitcomb and colleagues that compared eating disorder symptoms of trans men and women who were... I have to lay this out. Yes, please. It's a little complicated, but it's really... Uh I think it makes an important point. So in this study in the UK, they compared the eating disorder symptoms of trans men and women who were receiving gender-affirming care. Right. They compared them to cisgender men and women who were receiving treatment for eating disorders right. and to a group of cisgender men and women who were controls, not right. receiving treatment for eating disorders mm-hmm. or gender-affirming care. Um, and they found that trans men and women basically looked like the cisgender controls in terms of bulimia symptoms and drive for thinness. Mm-hmm. Um, however, the trans men who notably were not receiving care for eating disorders, and the cisgender men who were receiving eating disorders treatment had equally elevated levels of body dissatisfaction. Right. Uh, This was still lower than the body dissatisfaction of the cisgender women. Right. So that's probably a lot to, uh, just to say out loud, doesn't make a lot of sense or bigger, it's a hard to wrap your mind around, but I think for me the take-home there is that there's going to be a lot of variation, basically, in how, based on who we're talking to, Mm -hmm. And what their experiences have been, and and um, and gender is going to be a piece of that. Yeah. But we're still just beginning to think through all the ways that's true, um, and these, for the most part, are not representative samples of right. larger populations. Mm-hmm. So we don't know how these things compare in the general population. Right. That's something I I hope will change in yeah. the coming years through more collection of gender identity questions, and also of eating disorder related questions on population surveys. Sure, and I think Allegra, you explain it so well because these are complicated studies to try and unpack, and I think there's so it's such a new or like uncovered area of research that I think there's there are like so many, as you say, so many questions that, that we need to know more about and how it all plays out. And then, so I wonder, so we were kind of talking about gender in terms of men and mm-hmm. men and women, but I wonder if there's any work if we know anything about people who identify as non-binary or gender non-conforming. Yeah. Um, within the trans community, do we do we know anything about that? Yeah, um, yes and no. It's a really um, excellent point to be raising. I think the sort of group of folks who might identify as non-binary or broadly fall into a non-binary umbrella mm-hmm. um, is growing in visibility right. around the world. Um, we need a lot more research and advocacy in this area. There is um, one study 
that folks did using data from transgender adults in Massachusetts. Again, um, I'm mm-hmm. really speaking to my home context yeah. here, but um, it seems like a lot of work is happening. There yeah. has been a, yeah. a real growth. Um, so, in that study, found that non-binary folks, especially folks who were assigned to female sex at birth, were at greater risk of right. uh, self-reported uh, diagnosis of anorexia or bulimia uh-huh. compared to binary-identified trans men. Um, and trans women, and that overall, those with a non-binary identity had three times greater risk right. um, than those with a binary identity. Um, and so this is this is just one small study, but it, it definitely means that um, we need to be thinking more specifically mm-hmm. about the factors that non-binary folks are mm-hmm. facing that may be very different from folks who hold a binary identity. Right, right. And that study was saying that People who are identified as non-binary were three times at greater risk of eating disorders than trans men and trans women. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. That's right. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, it's really striking. Uh-huh. And um, it really means that, you know, when we're thinking about body mm-hmm. image and eating disorders programs, um, prevention, screening, and treatment, mm-hmm. then we have to be thinking in this very nuanced ways, yeah. way about how uh, people's experiences vary by gender. Yeah. And I guess that kind of leads on... Because we touched on some of the barriers to treatment for mm-hmm. for people in the trans community. What do you see as some of the main ones to to accessing help for yeah. um, disordered eating? Yeah, well, I have to qualify this by saying mm-hmm. that you know my work's been on the prevention side, mm-hmm. uh, so I'm less familiar with the treatment side, mm-hmm. but I do know based on the research that's out there and the work of community advocates, that we really have to think systemically about the range of barriers that transgender folks might be facing. So this includes everything from economic barriers, which of course are huge in this this area in general, in the field of treatment, and the U.S. insurance barriers are Mm -hmm. enormous, um, hopefully less so in other places. Um, And then we also have to think about sort of the history of discrimination that transgender people have faced uh-huh. in healthcare generally, right. which is pretty severe and is known to cause people to not seek care when they need it. So that's that's huge. Um, and then, of course, there's a general need for more eating disorder screening mm-hmm. in the general population from general practitioners, primary right. care providers. In our research, we found that in the study I mentioned before, that even folks who may have been engaging in some pretty concerning behaviors, typically were not having conversations with their providers about their eating concerns Uh or their weight control behaviors. It wasn't coming up. They may have been even receiving gender-affirming care that they needed, but that didn't mean that there was an eating disorder screening component going on. There's a lot of need there just in Mm -hmm. terms of identifying people, let alone having the services and the infrastructure Mm -hmm. in place to then actually give people the care they need. One other thing in terms of the the treatment barriers, from a study um, that Mary Duffy published, they found that even among transgender folks who managed to access eating disorders treatment, Mm -hmm. those folks, well, in that study, they found that there was really a lot of um, room for improvement, shall mm-hmm. we say. Um, many folks reported negative gender-related experiences in treatment facilities, um, or they reported not disclosing their gender identity at all right. while they were in treatment for fear of right. experiencing stigma. So that right. kind of vigilance itself can take a toll um, and likely be a barrier to the treat- treatment needed. Yeah, 
I can I can really believe that, and I think there's I feel like there's been research looking at even just cisgender men in eating disorder treatment finding finding things difficult and challenging and, and things not adapted to their needs. Right. One other note about mm. that is that as a major barrier and, and gap and need for more research and, and work for folks who are interested in this area is that, to my knowledge, and, and based on my conversations widely with clinicians and, and experts in this mm-hmm. area, there is still no evidence-based treatment that has been expressly designed to meet the needs right. of transgender or non-binary right. clients or patients. Clinicians, there are clinicians doing this work for sure um, and doing really wonderful work, and there are community advocates mm-hmm. who are really trying to pave the way. But um, but I am often now getting questions about where clinicians can go for evidence-based mm-hmm. guidelines, and they don't yet exist. So this is major. This It's a project that I'm working on with some colleagues, but um, we have a long way to go, and I would be excited to talk with anybody who's doing yeah. work in this area. Well, I hope there's like listeners who are like taking a million notes and like <laughs> having great ideas and <laughs> going to pave the way and do other things alongside you in some in some way to, to help address some of these needs. That sounds um, great. Yeah, I mean that's my hope for the podcast. No biggie. Um, <laughs> um, so I want to talk more about some of the work because you said that your your focus really is on prevention for eating disorders, maybe along along the lines with, with striped. And I know you were awarded a Harvard Catalyst grant, which mm-hmm. is a which is a big deal to fund a pilot project to develop a positive body image intervention for gender minority youth. Can you say a bit about what you're planning to do and why and and how you're kind of thinking about it and why you think it's important? Yeah, happy to. Yeah, we're really excited and lucky to get this pilot grant um, to kind of build on the research that I've been talking about and, and some other work that I've been doing in the past couple of years. Basically, we know that there are a host of evidence-based preventive interventions out there, body image mm-hmm. interventions. Um, certainly, um, many that CAR has been involved in right. leading the way in disseminating worldwide, like the Body Project sure. and its adaptations. Yeah. We know that they're out there. Um, we also know that they, uh, to date, have not been adapted um, right. for trans populations. And I've done some focus groups with mm-hmm. um, LGBTQ young people, broadly defined, to sort of talk about some of the appearance pressures that people are facing and some of the the elements that may need to be incorporated mm-hmm. um, into these groups. And one of the things that came out of the groups with, uh, you know, groups of LGBT young people was the complexity of talking about these issues in relation to gender. And, of course, a lot of the interventions mm-hmm. have been gender-specific, right. which is right. one of the challenges, right? Yeah. Um, they've mostly been tested in cisgender women, presumed right. heterosexual women. Yeah. But in these groups, we talked about sort of how to focus in on particular issues. And for the reasons that I kind of outlined before, in terms of need to focus on sociocultural forces, on minority stress and, and stigma, and on the gender affirmation sort of set of um, experiences and, and barriers, uh, we decided that we needed to consider adaptation specifically for transgender men, transgender women, and non-binary folks. Mm-hmm. But... We don't yet know what that should look like. So this is a community-engaged project to review the evidence-based literature, 
do some interviews with experts in this area. Mm -hmm. I will be calling you, for example. (laughs) (laughs) The body image complaint. But yeah, to better understand how these interventions have been implemented Uh and what the opportunities Mm -hmm. are for adaptation. And then um, to work with um, a community expert panel to really workshop the existing interventions and think through what needs to happen to change them. We're also going to be conducting some more focus groups, specifically with trans and non-binary young mm-hmm. adults in the U.S. nationwide, um, to 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 get into the nitty-gritty of what those appearance pressures are, how people are navigating them, especially what are people seeing on social media, how are they using social media mm-hmm. for um, both support and for um, as a, and and how are they also experiencing you know um, negative or, or problematic experiences how do they respond yeah and then what do they think about um, what needs to happen next how these interventions should be tailored or started anew how should they be delivered yeah these are some of the questions that we're excited to be asking yeah and I really love that I really love that you're working with um, like the community that you want to serve to help inform and develop what you want to give. I love the whole uh, community participatory approach. I just think, it, especially with this population, I think it's so important because it's such an underserved group and there's so much that we don't know. Um, and yeah. I think it's important to you know, get it as right as we can and evolve it. And I think that's, I think you're going about it, the, in, in my view at least, the best possible way. So I think that's really important and great. And I'm so glad you're doing this work, Allegra. Good. I, I hope it is helpful. And Evolve is right because these things keep changing. Right. Even our language around gender keeps yeah. changing. And the only way, I mean, young people are leading the way. So yeah. we definitely yeah, have to, sure. to turn to young people to yeah. help think through these um, complex questions. Mm-hmm because they definitely have the answers. I definitely don't. <laughs> already, um, the the join of force that, yeah, yes. I think that's, um, that's really great. So something I'm thinking about as we've been talking is how we better support the trans community when it comes to eating disorders and body image. Like, are there any, um, like, do we know anything in, in that way, how we, like, foster resilience and positive body image in, in that way? yeah. Um, so, I mean, I will say, I know I've been talking about a lot of challenges that we uh-huh. face in this area. At the same time, I do think there's a lot of reason to be hopeful. Right. Um, so we know that research in this area is growing, mm-hmm. um, including you know, just in the past five years. Um, we also know that treatment providers are becoming more and more aware of uh-huh. the need to adapt their services to yeah. better meet mm-hmm. the needs of trans and non-binary folks. Um, and that's an incredibly important source of support. Um, and then most of all, I'm seeing the way that community advocates are playing a really powerful role in improving access to supportive resources and treatment, mm-hmm. both creating resources within communities and then also doing outreach to providers and others to kind of mm-hmm. do this hard work of raising awareness and making sort of systems change. There's a really helpful piece, a uh, really eloquent piece by a writer and advocate um, named Jamie Bushell in the Huffington Post, uh, right. the U.S. blog, um, mm-hmm. about their own experiences and suggestions, some really critical suggestions for improving treatment experiences for oh. LGBTQ populations broadly. Um, and other folks are, are starting yeah. to write about this. So I think the best thing we can do is to keep pushing forward um, both rigorous research mm-hmm. on prevention and screening and treatment and doing everything possible to kind of amplify voices and create more space for transgender mm-hmm. non-binary researchers and advocates who are kind of making 
um, paving the way and, and helping helping shed light on what's needed next. Um, the last thing I'd say is that a clear theme that has come out um, in my research and the research of others um, is resilience, as you right. said at the start, um, resilience among transgender um, populations and communities. So, yeah, the eating disorders inequities that we're seeing um, are disturbing, uh, but it's also valuable to remember that the majority of the population is not reporting disordered mm -hmm. eating. And given what we know about the just the absolute insidiousness of anti-trans stigma, um, how it intersects with racism and sexism, at least mm -hmm. in the U.S., it's really worth celebrating how much folks have created supportive community mm -hmm. networks and buffers and are engaging in all kinds of forms of resistance um, now more than ever. Yeah. So that that also makes me feel really hopeful. Yeah, I think I did a spoiler when I said resilience because I, I read that paper and I think I, I remember that coming through and, and being encouraged by that. Um, so you've mentioned a couple of times about community advocates. Um, are there any, do you have like any go-to people that we can include in our show notes or that you can think of like top of mind? Um, yeah, well, there's a, there's a, a small but very mighty organization called Trans Folks Fighting Eating Disorders. It's right. based in California mm -hmm. um, that has an online presence and right. has done um, some sort of important ad outreach and advocacy work over uh -huh. the years. We're um, excited to partner with them a bit oh, on brilliant. this uh, catalyst study. Yeah. And um, so they're, they're one of uh, the resources that's emerging. Mm -hmm. The writer that I mentioned runs a blog called Third Wheel ED. Right. So yeah, there are yeah, a couple okay. things that might be worth yeah. linking to if people want to learn yeah. more. Yeah, that'd be brilliant. I'll, I'll do brilliant. that. I can put those in. Yeah. Great. Right. So um, I can't let you go without asking my favorite question. I think you might know what might be coming. Um, so you know at CAR we do a weekly cake and coffee morning. Um, I can't wait for you to come and visit us over in the UK in Bristol sometime. And if you do, I'd like to know what cake you would bring and why. This is a great question. <laughs> it definitely makes my mouth water and really makes me want to visit in person. So, but my answer does depend on the rigidity of your definition <laughs> of cake. So I'm primarily a, a pie and cookie person. How do you define cake? Pie and cookie. Um... But I'm well, I mean, we're quite we're quite open. We're quite open. Um, I don't think there are strict parameters to what uh, what's allowed and not not allowed. I think. Um, Has anybody brought a cookie before? I don't yeah, no. I think I think it has. I think actually American. Scott Griffith sent me <laughs> and what what are they called the oh, Australian Anzac. Yeah, Anzac biscuits <laughs> from. He brought them to Chicago. I took them from Chicago back to the UK. They made it. Uh, I didn't snack on them on the way back. <laughs> they got back to the UK and we had them. So yeah, cookies have been allowed. Okay, all right. And he past. wasn't disbarred. He wasn't disbarred. Okay, no. okay. Then I would probably bring my grandmother's killer ginger cookies with the crystallized ginger in them and the lemon zest, and I would hopefully treat you to those. Oh, they sound amazing. I'm sure they'll be <laughs> greatly enjoyed by everyone. Allegra, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to talk to you. It's been really, really great speaking to you and I've learned so much. <laughs>
that is so informative and like you said Allegra is very smart so I'll give you that. Um, we've linked to some of the studies that Allegra mentioned in the show notes as well as some of the resources she highlighted in case you just want to have um, a read and learn more about this topic really. Right and before we go to recap some of the main takeaways based on the research that we know and, and from what Allegra was saying it seems that People identifying as trans are at higher risk of disordered eating compared to their cisgender peers. So, and evidence says between maybe two and four times greater risk due to a combination of factors, including society's narrow gendered appearance ideals, um, minority stress and stigma, and then access to gender affirming medication for some people. Mm. And like you said in the interview, more kind of needs to be done to pass out differences in risks within the transgender community when it comes to disordered eating. There was that one study that found that gender non-binary individuals were at three times a higher risk compared to binary identifying transgender men or women, really. Yeah, I think it's so important not to kind of like lump everyone as like it's not like a homogenous group. Yeah. And I think it's important to end by recognising that although there is an elevated risk for disordered eating in the trans community, as Allegra said, it's not a given. And I think it's so important to remember how social discrimination, stigma and inequalities in terms of access to healthcare play out for trans people when it comes to their relationships with their bodies and mental health. Mm, Really good point. Yeah. And right, I think that's an excellent point to end on. It really takes us back to thinking about social epidemiology in general, really. Yeah, social epi. 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 (laughs) So thanks so much to Dr. Allegra Gordon for joining us on this episode of Appearance Matters podcast. And join us next time for an episode on body image and body hair. Mm. And remember, if you enjoyed this episode or found it useful in any way, please do rate us and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people to find our podcast. Yes. Thank you.